Hi, welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we get to talk about school lunches. And while I definitely am curious what Misasha's favorite school lunch was growing up, it's not just about what the content is, but about affordability, why kids are going hungry. And most importantly, if you're listening to it right now, as it's being released, there is a public comment period that's open until September 23rd, 2019. And we'll link to the page so you can make your voices heard on this too. So here we are, mid-September. Schools across the country started weeks ago, sometimes a month ago, sometimes school started in August, right? But we're reminded of all the things that come with school. We had backpacks, homework, and no matter whether your kid eats at school or you're at home, we're talking about lunch. And what happens when that lunch and sometimes all federal assistance is going to be potentially cut for half a million kids? That's what we're going to talk about today. Hey, Misasha, what was your favorite lunch when you were going to school? Okay, so let me preface this by saying I know how this sounds. I went to (laughs) – you're laughing before I even got a chance to say anything, so fine. My school didn't have a cafeteria, okay? I went to a private prep school in Southern California, and we brought our own lunch until we had the lunch truck guy who came, and it was called John's Lunch Truck, even though apparently the original John and John's Lunch Truck had gotten arrested at some point. There was still the lunch truck. So see, this was an okay story after all. But anyway, I brought my lunch. So I was at the mercy of my parents until I was old enough to pack it myself. And then John's Lunch Truck, who brought those tiny little chicken littles, sandwiches from KFC, which were delicious when you're in ninth grade. Sarah, what was your favorite school lunch? I really liked the refried beans that <laughs> they served on those cardboard trays. That is actually not at all what I was expecting. I don't know what I was expecting, but that wasn't it. My mom, I feel like she probably made me lunch. Sorry, mom. I don't even know if mom listens to this podcast. I do know we had like bentos for Japanese school on the weekends, but I don't, I felt like I definitely have vivid memories of elementary school standing in the hot lunch line and with the tray and getting food that way. But did your parents make you more Japanese or like American food? Well, it was my mom largely making lunch until my dad took over at for one year, basically. I felt like it was all the bento. Oh, except for the fact that I had, you know, one of those lunch boxes, like a plastic Snoopy lunch box, because I'm going to just super date myself. The peanuts were super popular. And my dad thought that it was weird. I seem to remember to have just like regular water. So he put a lemon slice in my water. And I thought that that was horrible. Like who has a lemon slice in their water? I just, I was like this. I already don't seem like other kids because I've got my like, you know, Japanese pencil box and sometimes my strange Japanese snacks. Do I really need lemon water? But that's another story from my childhood that um It's neither here nor there, really. So, And so what about your kids now? Like, do you make them lunches? They have hot lunch at school. So it alternates between pasta, soup and sandwich, that type of thing. So one kid will eat most of it. One kid will not. And then I pack snacks for them. What about yours? Oh, I am so jealous that your kids eat hot lunch. (laughs) I pack lunches and have always packed lunches. And therefore, I hate lunches. I mean, I basically do leftovers. We've been gluten-free for a while. 
And so we never got the kids in the habit of sandwiches because the gluten-free bread was like eating cardboard at the time that we started doing gluten-free. So the kids just don't get sandwiches, which makes making lunch like a whole production. So it's always like leftovers or we are sometimes on cheese and cracker kicks or whatever. But I've done it because a couple of years ago, we went to the public school for at our when we like first joined this school in Denver, went to they had a special Thanksgiving lunch where you come in and you have turkey and it's like your families are invited to have lunch with you. And I'm sure it was, I can't even say it was the best that they could do. It was terrible. It was really bad. It was like a beige lunch. I could hardly eat anything because it had so much gluten in it and I don't react well to it. So I was just sort of, my kids were like, ooh, this is not like the lunch that we want to have. Mom, your lunches are better, even though they are whatever. Anyway, so we just basically never got into it. But that's why I relate to the school lunch, because I grew up having them. It might be the very same type of lunches that I had growing up, but that time that we were at our kids' lunch here, I was not impressed. My kids probably, you know, are spoiled now to have whatever they want put in their lunches. So I think they wanted to have hot lunch at the beginning, and then we had that Thanksgiving, and then they didn't. But that's where this conversation is interesting, because a lot of kids have school lunch, and There are even more kids. I was really surprised at some of the numbers of the kids who need lunch and breakfast at school because they don't get fed otherwise, period. End of story. Not because I don't want to make lunch as a mom, but because they don't have money to have food. And so that's why this conversation is really like big for me. And I'm glad we're having it. Yeah. And I think that is such an important thing to remember that if this is your meal or maybe your two meals for the day, like this is crucial, especially as you're a growing child. And so what prompted this you know, are wanting to talk about this is at the end of July, Pennsylvania officials came under fire when they attempted to collect money owed for school lunches in one of the poorest districts in the state. After failing to reach families through other modes of communication, the director of federal programs for the Wyoming Valley West School District, so to be clear, this is Wyoming and Pennsylvania, sent a letter to about 1,000 families who owed an average of $28, stating that, quote, your child has been sent to school every day without money and without a breakfast and or lunch. This is a failure to provide your child with proper nutrition, and you can be sent to dependency court for neglecting your child's right to food. If you are taken to dependency court, the result may be your child being removed from your home and placed in foster care. So that was like, you know, a WTF moment for me there because, dependency court for owing $28. Apparently, there were also suggestions that kids who were sent this letter would be served nothing but peanut butter and jelly. Wasn't that like the height of like, that was what you did for lunch. So first of all, that's interesting that that scene is like a discriminatory, like, you know, judging practice. But anyway, that's a total side note. And how much money did it cost to send a letter compared to the 28 bucks? But anyway, yeah. So after that letter was sent and, you know, everyone was like, what is happening here? County officials dismissed the threat, assuring families that it was empty and would not be acted on. And ultimately, the incident was no more than a scare tactic by a handful of officials and embarrassment to others. And I mean, let's just pause here for a second that your scare tactic is, you know, threatening families with, you know, the removal of their kids for failing to pay, you know, an average of $28 for food. So what's interesting here is that in this district, one in five children live in poverty. 
And notably, in the coming year, free lunches will be provided to all students in the district, thank God, because at least 60% of them meet the federal income threshold to qualify for free school meals. And that is a very low threshold. Too. Yes, I wanted to be clear. Like, here's the guideline for a family of four living in the contiguous United States, so not Alaska, not Hawaii, because those cost a little bit more. But if you make $47,638 annually, or the equivalent of $917 a week, you qualify for reduced lunch. And when they talk about the threshold for free school meals, if your family makes $33,475, or the equivalent of $644 a week, then you get free breakfast and lunch. Because because it's a little bit higher than the federal poverty guidelines, right? For a family of four, you meet the federal poverty level if you make $25,750 for a family of four. So that's the threshold in this country. Yeah, which, you know, as you highlighted, especially when you broke it down on the per dollars per week, that is low. And I think what the example in Pennsylvania highlighted is that there is a lot of hostility towards low-income students and families who struggle with hunger every day. So there was another example that we found this time in Georgia. Brandy Whited, her six-year-old daughter, told her mother she was hungry when her mom picked her up from kindergarten in early 2018. And this sort of broke my heart because I have a kindergartner. Her lunch had consisted of only a cheese sandwich and water. And the reason was over the Christmas holiday, Whited had overlooked a notice from the school district saying she owed a, quote, couple of dollars in student lunch debt. By the time students returned to school, the debt had risen to the $12.50 limit allowed before students are served alternative meals. So that which is a really low limit. She said her daughter still hasn't forgotten. She felt like she'd done something wrong. And if you bring it up, she'd tell you that she thought she was being punished, said her mom, who lives in Georgia. And her daughter ate cheese sandwiches for several days before this mom was notified of the debt, she said. I mean, that's how much cheaper. I get it. I get bread and cheese is not as expensive, but compared to what? The refried beans that I loved growing up? Like, why are we making kids feel and also not giving them the like feel bad and then not giving them the nutrition they need? to like thrive and not feel like the other because of the money that their parents may or may not have or a one notice that they may or may not have missed for a couple of dollars, which in this case is a lot of money relative to how much some people are making regularly. So let's talk about the school lunch program. Like let's break this down a little bit. Across the country, more than 30 million children participate in the national school lunch program. 30 million kids. So the schools participating in this program, which is administered through the USDA's Food and Nutrition Service, provide meals subsidized by the federal government. So the meals for students who are eligible for those free and reduced price lunches that we talked about, they get the most reimbursement from the government, while those for students who pay full price get the least. And so what happens is kids, you know, you go to school, if you forget your lunch money or you can't afford it, you have the meals charged to your account. Like my kids have a school lunch number because we're part of the public school district. So it's this account, this number that you have. And if that account isn't paid back by the end of the school year, it falls on the school districts to offset the cost. So I was confused by this, but maybe you can explain the National School Lunch Program allots no money to make up the debt. It just sort of pays the subsidy that it says it's going to pay, but it doesn't. Then if the parents can't meet that portion, then the school district has to swallow that money. 
Is that right? Yeah. So there's a delta, right, then between the amount that the school lunch program is giving and maybe that the school is receiving, right? So there might not be if there's unpaid accounts. So this national school lunch program has no onus to pay the school district back. So the school district does have to eat the additional incremental costs. Got it. And just to dig into those numbers, the states get reimbursed by the federal government at a rate of $2.09 for breakfast. And for lunch, it's $3.65. So that's the amount of subsidy the federal government gives these states. It's not like, and these lunches aren't like crazy expensive, right? That's the level of money that we're talking about for each kid to eat a meal, breakfast or lunch that the federal government's subsidizing. Yeah, I think what was interesting and something I had no idea about was what that unpaid school meal debt looks like, right? So they did a survey in 2018 by the School Nutrition Association, which is a group representing school lunch administrators and workers of more than 1,200 districts. And the debt per district ranged from $10 to $856,000 which is a huge swing. So the median district debt exactly in the middle of the distribution was 2500 in 2018, uh, which is up 25% from what the $2,000 number that they saw in surveys in 2016 and 2014. I mean, 25% is no joke increase. Like that's a significant amount. And what does that say right now about parents' ability to afford to pay for their kids to eat at school, even through subsidized programs? Yeah. And I think as we saw in Pennsylvania, to get parents to pay, schools use various methods. So they have a variety of tactics, including online payments, school staff notifying parents directly, and offering assistance to families for completing the free and reduced price meal forms, according to the same 2018 survey. A small percentage, less than 6% of the districts surveyed, reported using tactics critics say are the most shaming, such as, as we discussed, offering different meals to the students or employing collection agents. But clearly this is done. And who's to say that this isn't being underreported, right? But we have some very clear examples of when it has happened. I mean, I can't imagine going into like people having to chase down debt collectors if you're already struggling with money. And presumably in terms of, I mean, I don't know, as a mom, as a parent, I feel like viscerally my number one thing that I need to provide for my children is to feed them. Like the amount of angst from the time they were babies where I'm like, take the bottle or, you know, like to feed them the right food and the nutrition or whatever. You want what's best. Most moms, most parents really want what's best for their children. And to then be told you have to go into a collection agency because you can't afford to feed, like through subsidized plans, you still, I don't know, that's just, it's a lot to process right now because we're talking about giving kids alternate meals that make them go hungry. Like when's the last time you really went hungry. I mean, I know people, we were just, we were at brunch earlier and we were talking about intermittent fasting and, you know, like that whole thing that's happening right now where people are like, I don't eat after 6 p.m. or I don't eat after 8 p.m. and then I don't eat until noon the next day. And like, they're like, I was really hungry the first few times. Like that's a different level of hunger when you have the option to not eat versus a child whose body is growing, who is not in charge of income, not in charge of the food in the house, and they don't have access to food Or if they do, maybe it's, you know, fast food because cheap food in this country and affordable food is not healthy vegetables or fruit or whatever. It's the bag. It's the can of food, you know, and to have that, if you're lucky for breakfast or lunch, and then, or then you get like a watered down version of what school lunches are. And then you don't have it, presumably nothing to eat at dinner then, because if your parents can't do that, like there are kids who go to school 
to get fed breakfast and lunch, don't get dinner, and they're coming back to school the next morning to have their next meal. It's so critical for people who don't have money here. And as a parent, you can rely on it. It's a powerful program. Yeah. It's one of those heartbreaking moments where even if you're not a parent, if you know kids at all, you can picture that scenario of just, or when you were a kid, thinking about how that hunger feels and how you don't have control over that and how you are depending on the fact that you need to be able to eat at school so you can focus in class, you know, and get, be able to break the cycle or have at least a shot of getting out of the cycle. Because that right there is the heartbreaking thing, right? We talk about the need to eat as like a primal thing, but you think about kids and who they're growing up to be. How do you expect children to learn, to grow, to be kind and passionate and patient and a leader, like if you don't have the nutrients that your body and your brain needs. And I think the thing that's important about these programs, and it doesn't only move the needle on child hunger, but it increases children's mental health and physical growth. You know, it's been shown that policies aimed at supporting single working mothers makes a difference in child hunger. And according to some studies, I mean, there, we can link to this study that you found too, but the takeaway is that the United States underinvests in its children and their families. And by doing it, that underinvesting, it leads to high child poverty, poor health, and educational outcomes. And if you experience poverty in your early years, it can have long lasting consequences on so many different dimensions of these kids' lives in the future, their adult health status, their performance at school, future labor market outcomes. And if you don't fall into the category of poverty, but you still have kids, these are the kids that your kids are going to grow up with. They're going to be in society with these kids who are hungry. They're going to work with them, interact with them. We should really all care about this because it directly impacts the future of our country because that's the landscape. And so, so many research studies have shown that early and continued intervention, whether they're social investments or these income supports, and they can curb the trends high quality early childhood education and care, continuous access to healthcare, income support, parenting support to facilitate work and family life, they really contribute to lessen the effects of children living in poverty. And so it's really critical that we're paying attention to this development right now in our country and the input that we can have coming up in the next week or so. So true. And I think it's also important. And, you know, we've kind of touched on this and, and this has been a theme throughout our whole podcast. There is a racial disparity here as well in hunger. And right now, African-American and Latino children experience hunger at double the rate of white children in this country, in part because wealth inequality has widened along racial and ethnic lines in recent decades. And this is something we're going to be focusing a lot on in the fall. This means that Black and Latino children are more likely to be stigmatized for their poverty. And some schools, like along the lines of the discussion we just had earlier, physically separate kids who receive free or discounted lunches, sending an unintended and false message that affects perceptions of race among children. Because let's just think about that for a second. If you've got a Black or Latino classmate who is physically separated from you and you know that child is having a free lunch, children are connecting the dots in a way that school administrators or schools are telling them to connect them to. And that is 
tragic on so many levels. Right. Um, but that often happens from my understanding. There are a lot of kids whose parents pay full price for the free and like we all the kids in the public school system have their ID number, their school lunch number. And so unless you're at the point, I, from my understanding, at least in our school district, it's like all the kids who pay for hot lunch or want to get hot lunch, go ahead and get lunch. It's only when the families who can't afford it or getting these random sort of manipulative punishments in order to get the parents to pay that the kids are paying the price by being separated out. That's my understanding of that. Yeah. I mean, I hope that that's the case, but I think we have seen examples where that's, it's not. So hopefully that is, but yeah, that's probably true. So, you know, we've talked a lot about the underlying issue, but I think what we look for on this podcast is where can we go from here too? So there are ways to feed children from low-income families without stigmatizing them or causing them to feel shame. But as we've alluded to, it really falls onto the shoulders of school administrators to commit to more equitable lunch practices. We have some great examples of some suggested best practices that we'll be linking to in our show notes. And, you know, my favorite, the Southern Poverty Law Center, has a teaching tolerance project that has created a toolkit to help educators view lunchtime through an equity lens. And, you know, I'm not going to go into it in, in a lot of detail here, but it's really built around three foundational questions. First, what is the relationship between lunchtime and equity? Two, how are socioeconomic differences handled at lunchtime in your school? And three, what actions can you and colleagues take to make lunchtime more just for students? Which I think are three, you know, seemingly simple, very complicated questions. And while those are geared towards educators, you know, as we were reading these, it seems to make a lot of sense for parents or adults in general to be asking themselves these questions, especially when you're thinking about your own school district. Totally. And I think one of the things that is important to think about as parents too, is how do you support, because administrators can follow the policies of the school district, you know, and make these lunchtime policies in their school a certain way, but I'm really curious how the school districts overall are pushing this message into the individual schools. Are they saying, well, we need to get these parents to pay because our school district can't afford to swallow that debt at the end of the day? Because I mean, you talk about the 800 something thousand dollar debt, like that's multiple teacher salaries right there that the school district cannot then pay high quality teachers to teach if they're having to eat that for school, like for a student lunch debt. So what are other things that parents also can do to contribute whether it's, you know, I've seen these ideas on social media of like a pantry, a school pantry where kids can come in and grab food for the weekend if they don't get it or if they need it. There's ways for administrators to be creative around that without creating shame for the kids whose families either can't or are missing the message about them needing to pay for the lunches. Yeah, so true. So shifting the focus for a second, you know, we've identified the issue. We're talking about, you know, ways in which we can address this. So what is the holdup here? And I, I think what we, you know, the impetus, the entire reason we wrote this episode is that there is a current situation that is happening that will directly affect half a million kids. And so let's talk about that specifically. So in the current climate, political support has waned for food programs for the poor to the point of hostility. And there is one specific step that the Trump administration has taken that would it affects more than just kids. It would prevent an estimated three million people from receiving supplemental assistance for their food budgets. 
So fundamentally, and it gets kind of complicated and technical, as Sarah pointed out to me in reading these notes. So I will try to make it as simple as possible. So a new calculation proposed by the administration would make the federal poverty line rise more slowly each year. So that would push many low income people over it. What that means really is that, you know, cost of living goes up every year. Inflation changes. We have you see the prices change in goods and services that we buy. But if you're not moving what it means to be poor and that line that Sarah was talking about earlier up at all, then you have people who are not, who are going to be poorer or relative because everything else is more expensive, but they're not going to be classified as below the poverty line. Got it. And therefore they're not going to be eligible for a lot of the programs. Correct. So this would eventually reduce the number of families eligible for assistance programs, including school lunches, despite the fact that they would actually still be experiencing poverty. So how, and real briefly, there is a program out there called the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP. And you may see this at grocery checkout lines. You can see this SNAP eligible signs in supermarkets and targets in large stores, well as grocery stores. And this program is commonly used as a basis for certifying kids for free and reduced lunch, which could increase the number of kids going hungry at home and struggling to pay for lunch at school if this rule is changed. So basically groups of people, and they look at it through households that qualify for certain cash benefits, including temporary assistance for needy families or general assistance, are treated as categorically eligible for SNAP. So that means that because they've met these other criteria, they're eligible for these free and reduced school lunch program automatically. And 43 states have basically set this up. So they've said that, you know, if you're eligible for, you know, certain benefits such as childcare assistance, work supports, along with Medicaid in some states, you get free and reduced lunch at school. And so many states allow households with incomes up to 200% of the poverty line, which is about $50,000 per year for a family of four, to receive these benefits. But if you take the connection away, so you say, you know, even if you're eligible for certain benefits or whatever, you're not automatically eligible for SNAP. We're also going to look at where your benefits fall versus your income and where, you know, we're not moving this poverty line quite as fast. So we're not sure you're going to qualify anymore. So without, if they change that, anyone earning more than 130% of the poverty line, which in real dollars is less than $33,000 per year for a family of four, could lose these benefits. So that is a very real change. You've got, you know, about $18,000, $17,000 swing in income, which you are not a whole section, 3 million, basically adults, plus, you know, you've got 500,000 kids who are going to be directly affected by this. Because what I just talked about, broad-based categorical eligibility improves access to SNAP. And this new rule would change that, just to recap. So under the rule, only people receiving substantial benefits valued at $50 or more would be eligible. And that's only if they did a whole bunch of other things, like utilizing work supports, childcare vouchers, and subsidized employment. So... The USDA estimates that these changes could strip SNAP from 3.1 million people in 1.7 million households. 
So they originally said that this would probably affect like a quarter of a million kids. However, not surprisingly, in mid-June, the USDA admitted that this number could really be close to half a million. And just to be clear, children in 2.9 million households experienced food insecurity in 2017. And while child poverty rates are falling, 41% of children remain low income and have difficulty paying in the cafeteria. So we have a real need for that in this country. And there are also ways that like foster and migrant youth, runaways and children in families with benefits like SNAP are automatically qualified for free meals. And the administration is saying, well, you can still kind of apply, but to lose that automatic qualification is a big, big deal. It really is. Holy smoke. And it's not like these lunches are like, as I said, it's not like they're gourmet lunches. They typically cost less than $3. But it's when you really don't have $3 to spare, like when you're living right on the margin of poverty, like when you're choosing between the roof over your head, a meal, you know, having clothes that actually fit. I don't even know. Like there's so many things when you're just surviving, that $3 is a big deal. And why are we making it difficult for people who need it the most to get some fundamental things that actually are benefiting our society. If you have hungry kids are miserable and they're interacting with all the other kids, why are we creating more of a burden for our country longer term by not allowing kids to be fed? Yep, and if you wanna look at it on a structural level too, you know how we talked about that school districts receive money for this free and reduced lunch program and they receive money for lunches period. And if you cut that funding, because you will, if less and less kids are eligible for this, then you are directly affecting the bottom line of the districts. So you're affecting the personnel that they have there, the ability for the districts to do other things. So it, you are hurting children at a very visceral level, but you are also hurting sort of one of the bigger structural institutions of our society. Which, in my opinion, schools are already struggling. We already don't pay teachers enough. We already are underfunding our education. And so that's, I didn't even think about that connection. That's really important to not be doing. So what's the good news? Okay, so there is some good news. um, And that's why we really want to ask for your help. Because while this rule has been proposed, it is not done yet. And you have the ability to go onto a website which has sort of the text and the description of the proposed change and write comments about what you think about this proposed change. And we will provide this link through everything, show notes, email, social media, but you only have until September 23rd to do this. So in the next five days, if you have a minute Take some time, go on the website, look at the proposed changes for yourself, because don't just trust us. Like, you want to know what's going on. And write what you really think about school lunches and about funding for them and about children. You know, your own experience with school lunches, whatever you feel. But this is your chance to really have an impact in how things happen in our country, which we don't often get. A lot of times things are passed without our knowledge or the public comment period is short, but this time we're in it. So let's do something. Exactly. See something, say something, right? Going back. So let's do it. Let's make these comments happen. We'll send all this information out. Make sure you're on our channel so you don't miss it. Yes, definitely. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. 
Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there.